tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about all the excellent content being created out there these days. And there are some great projects featuring many of our talented No Sleep team. Let's start with the great new podcast most of you got a sneak peek of this week. It's called The Oyster, an immersive sci-fi mind-bender with an all-star cast. It includes quite a few of our voice actors in supporting roles. You won't want to miss listening to The Oyster. And our friends over at the Creepy Pizza YouTube channel have released a great new short film called Hexed. And it stars our very own Jessica McAvoy in her screen debut, along with a great musical score by Brandon Boone. Check it out and let it cast its spell on you. And finally, the new podcast Fear Noir has released its first episode. It's created by writer Michael Whitehouse and stars the inimitable Peter Lewis. Delve deep into this engaging crime horror anthology series. Check the show notes for links to all three projects and discover some of the quality content being created these days. And speaking of quality content, we have some for you starting this very moment. Now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we find ourselves in the vast blackness of the universe. Space, so much of it is uncharted territory, and the idea of traversing the stars beyond our solar system is but a distant dream away. But in this tale, shared with us by author Kevin Atkinson, we discover that some things can be found in space that were better left unfound. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Jessica McAvoy, Atticus Jackson, Dan Zapula, and Jeff Clement. So bring that cargo in from the void, but be careful when you do. Otherwise, you might be haunted by the ghosts of Gemini. Personal log of Captain Elaine F. Hicks. Dated day 332 of mission 1212. Submitted as evidence in investigation number 3945. Exhibit 12A. We found something today. Recording this seems a bit strange, but I wanted to log this before the shock wore off. We were latching onto the last roid, about 30 meters in diameter. After locking orbit, it continued to spin, slowly, and 
We just saw it there, buried in the rock, half in and out. It was bright white. You never forget that shade of white, not in this business. Every cadet goes to see it, the flag. It's sitting in the museum on Luna. Nothing looks that shade of white up close. So it makes sense, I guess. No, it doesn't. Scratch that. This must be some kind of prank. One of those Kandahar crews working out here a few years ago left it. Begley's doing an analysis of how long it'd take for something to bleach that color if left unshielded. I figure about two years. Regardless, it's not real. It's certainly not genuine. You don't just find Apollo-era spacesuits floating around out here. Engineer Gerald Begley's notes. Logged in personal tablet on day 332 of mission 1212. Exhibit 5A. I had to check the math, of course. Sit down and really crunch the numbers on something like this before we did anything else. It's terrific. I mean, massively exciting. Captain wanted me to prove it wasn't real, and yeah, technically speaking, something could lose all shade like that if exposed basically within just a year, but come on. This is massive. This is the biggest discovery anybody in the company or the corpse had in a century. She wants to pretend it's a joke, and I get it, but it's... it's too big to ignore. So after I got her the report on UV bleaching, I went back and tried to figure out how the damn thing got out here. What it would have taken, what speed it would have needed to be here based on a rough time frame. It would have had to depart orbit in 1965. That's four years before we got someone on the moon. I didn't remember us ever losing someone out like that, so I went back and checked the records. The Soviets lost knots in space, but the U.S. never did. It's clearly a U.S. design. At least the initial look is. Looks like early generation spacewalk gear. Gonna do a bit more digging. See what I can find. Sick leave approval. Logged on day 333 of mission 1212. Exhibit 9B. Shift 3 early dismissal for Dennis Wills. Reason for dismissal? Creating an unsafe work environment. Notes. Wills was sluggish throughout the first portion of his shift. Asked him why. Responded he hadn't slept well. Send him for bed rest before somebody got hurt. He was mad to lose the shift, but we've already got one busted line out array. Another one would slow us down too much. Put Nawi on a double shift to cover. Signed, Foreman Red Lancet. Captain Hicks Log. Date 333 of Mission 1212. Exhibit 12B. We've halted mining operations until we figure out what's going on with the suit. Begley thinks it's the kind of thing that could make us all rich. He's an idiot. Worse. He's a desperate idiot. We've been scavenging off the scraps of Kandahar's last trawl through here for six months now. Payroll is already underperforming, and Begley's had to sell off some of our surplus parts just to keep us in the black. 
Hopefully, the corp will get us some decent leads by the time we get to the station. Lancet is already complaining about the crop of rookies on this run, but there's no way around it. We have to use the people we get, not the other way around. This suit is just another trap. A joke. Still, couldn't hurt to pull it in. Clear the path for the next crew, anyways. I've sent word to Lancet that tomorrow we'll spacewalk and pull the thing in. I had a dream about it. It's stupid, but I did. We pulled it in and got it into quarantine. Then we had Dr. Gawara open it up. When he did, the arm moved. Yeah, that made the old heart rate kick up. I had to spend the rest of the day doing shallow breath and catching catnaps here and there to stay alert. Corp has me on file that Dr. Gawara is not to prescribe any stimulants unless medically necessary. Thank God for that. Transcript of Security Log in Canteen A. Day 333 of Mission 1212. Exhibit 10B. Synopsis. Crewman Wills and Crewman Hurt discuss the anomalous object and its effect on the crew. Not that big a deal. I was just a little fucking tired, you know? Yeah, man, I, I get it. Being off that shift means I don't get any shares from that day, and I'm already close to signing on again for another goddamn trip. That bad? I don't know, man. I tried investing in that Litecoin shit. Oh, fuck. That went sideways months ago, Wills. Yeah, and Henri wants to get a skim sled for Yule next year, rent is up. This whole field is spent anyway, Kandahar's out there in Kuiper, we're stuck here. Did you talk to Dr. G? Might hook you up with a sleeping pill or a stim next time. I don't know. I just had that dream and it freaked me out. Probably nothing, right? Captain says it's a prank. I sure hope so. God, can you imagine if there was a- Fuck. No, man. I don't need that shit in my head. Begley's insisting it's real, but there's no record of someone getting spaced before 2022. At least not with the Americans. (sighs) Shit, man, you believe that? You think the old presidents would have gotten on TV and said, yep, lost another astronaut today, if they didn't have to? This predates the moon landing, Dennis, if Begley is right. But it's not real, right? There's nobody in that suit? Engineer Gerald Begley's notes. Logged in personal tablet on day 334 of mission 1212. Exhibit 4C. Captain ordered a wait on pulling the anomaly into the ship. It's buried too deep in the pile to pull out with the arms, so we were in the middle of prepping for the spacewalk with Lancet's crew. But then word came down that she was ordering a full stop. When we asked her why, she said it wasn't worth the risk. It's ridiculous. We had guys out there yesterday planning charges before we found the suit, but now she's skittish? That... I'm prepping a full write-up on the suit, based on the observations we've been able to do with the drones. If I had permission, I'd use one of the drones to try and excavate. But corp regulations say no usage of drones for retrieval unless you have the spares on hand. And I sold off the last two we had to cover last pay period. So I'm just using the camera on them to take pictures of the suit for comparisons. From every detail that we've been able to capture, the unit is from around the time of the Gemini missions. 
We've gotten some photographic documentation of those units, and I think that this matches up. I've seen what looks like an old micro-thruster, probably using N2 built into the suit, with handheld controls locked onto the belt. I spent a long time looking at the visor and helmet unit, trying to identify any serial numbers, but if anything was on there, it's not visible. (sighs) It was tough to think about. I read up on Gemini 4, the first official American spacewalk. The list of things that went wrong in there. The door mechanism jammed and wouldn't open, and then wouldn't close when Ed White came back aboard until they fixed it. The radio unit in the suit failed. It wouldn't fire for 79 seconds. It would be a mercy for everyone aboard if the knot had. This got morbid. The point is, even in circumstances when everything looked like it had failed, like like death was a certainty, our ancestors managed to get it together. It is impossible that there be a person in that suit. It is, at worst, a talented mock-up as the captain suspects. Best case scenario, it's worth a fortune. We cannot pass this up. Sorry, Captain. Gotta make a call. Partial transcript of investigation number 3945. Testimony of Elaine Hicks. Exhibit 17A. Captain, did you speak with Engineer Begley after his report to the corporate office? Yes. How would you describe that conversation? I would say it was... heated. Why is that? I was upset that he had gone over my head. You had decided to move on? I had decided that dispatching someone to retrieve the item in question... The suit? Yes. I decided the risk-reward ratio was not in the corporation's favor. Engineer Begley disagreed and contacted the corporate office, and they instructed you to retrieve the item. Yes. Audio clip from private office of Captain Hicks. Day 335 of Mission 1212. Shift 2. Exhibit 1D. Son of a bitch. Captain. What do you think you're doing undermining my authority like that? Captain, we're not making any money on this trip. That does not justify... There just aren't enough mineral drops to justify this trip. We're busting up rubble piles? Kandahar pulled everything of value out of here five years ago. The last trip we barely broke even. And if we don't get some profit out of this, the corp is going to repossess the ship. Gerald, I swear to God. If that's real out there, then it's worth more than anything in the Aetons. Do you understand? That could be a human-sized chunk of gold, and it wouldn't be worth as much as a historical artifact never before seen. Do you hear how you sound? We are talking about a missing spacesuit from one of the most heavily documented programs of all time. There is a listing of every spacewalk, every experiment run, every single thing related to spacework up until the collapse of 55. That thing out there doesn't exist in any of that documentation. So what is it doing there? Some bored engineer on a Kandahar ship mocked it up. Somebody spray-painted a suit with the words, Murricans go home, and set it out to mess with us because they knew we were behind them. 
Then just pull it in and be done with it. I am not risking one of my knots to pull in a joke. Captain, we've done hundreds of spacewalks in this ship. This is not a risk. Every one of those walks was a risk. You know that. Look, even Lancet can run a simple walk like this. I don't care how simple it is. We're not doing it. <sighs> Quit staring at me, Begley. Captain, have you been sleeping? What? Captain, have you slept in the last... This is low, even for you. What are you talking about? You want me out of commission. You think if you start trying to make a case that I need to be relieved of duty... That's not it at all. Your eyes are... Quiet! I don't want to hear another word out of you. Get down to your station, finish your shift, and get the nav ready to get us to the station. Captain, with all due respect, you are passing up a golden opportunity here. You are dismissed, Begley. Don't you ever go over my head again, or I will file a complaint, and I will get you demoted. Log of Elaine Hicks. Day 335 of mission number 1212. Exhibit 3D. The arm moves, and the suit starts trying to get to its feet. That's how I always know it's a dream, and I always wake up right afterwards. Last night, I thought maybe I'd just wait it out, see what happens. But part of me knows. It gets up. It takes the helmet off, and underneath is... something. A skull is too easy. I don't think my subconscious would bother with something so simple. Maybe Dad's face. Maybe Dad's face all zombified and rotting. Or Gerald, or... somebody. Really, that's all it needs to be to make me feel like I'm going to throw up. It just needs to be somebody in there. Half the reason most of us are out here is because whatever happened in the past, it can't hurt you. Break orbit and your past is gone. Sailors on Earth used to say that the ocean was freedom. Freedom from your old world. Space is the ocean multiplied by infinity. I'm out here. We're all out here. Because when you go to space... You're leaving behind every problem you ever had back home. Nothing's supposed to come back to haunt you. Not stimulus, not government shutdowns, not ex-wives. We leave it behind, and it never haunts us again. That's the reward for staring into a blackness so big it can only swallow you whole. Testimony of Engineer Gerald Begley. Exhibit 19D. The idea started with Wills. He didn't look good, and we asked him why. He said his family wasn't going to get enough money from this trip since he'd been relieved twice. Captain and I had had our talk, and Wills was almost crying. Looking back with his sleep the way it was, maybe I should have seen it. But I've seen a lot of guys break when the money doesn't come through. And the money wasn't going to come through on this mission. So, Wills and I decided we were going to get rich. Partly it was because I was mad, sure, but I also thought it needed to be in a museum, you know? 
This was our history. The history of America before the Indians shut us out of the space we had laid claim to. So I talked to Wills, and we decided to do a quick walkout, grab it while the captain was off duty, and smuggle it to the station. Once we had it there, we could do whatever we needed. He was shaking, but it was fine. I was shaking too. I was excited and exhilarated and I I triple checked the rigging. I did. I went through everything three times with a fine tooth comb. I used to spacewalk every other day when I was on the Leopard. We got his maneuver pack attached, triple checked that, and I got him into the airlock. That's when it started to go wrong. He spooled out after the decompression period. His thruster took him out there. The suit was only 300 meters out, nothing at all. No distance of significance. And his thruster took him halfway there. And then he stopped firing. Let the momentum carry him the rest of the way. Firing a bit to slow himself in reverse as he approached. Textbook. God... The kid had eight walks under his belt. He knew his shit. I I don't know what happened to him out there, but... He had the carabiner in hand. And just... Sat there. I don't know what was going through his head. But he stopped moving for a solid 15 seconds. In the console, I saw a light go on. His radio had gone dead. Just like Ed White. I was looking out there as he was attaching the tether around the waist of the anomaly. I was looking right at him when the charges detonated. It shouldn't... They weren't on any standard frequencies. They shouldn't have been primed. But they went off. And the pile started to shift apart. One of the pieces of debris slammed into him. And the thruster on his suit fired. It was old one of the canisters must have ruptured. So, he started spinning, and the line went taut. I went to pull him in, but the winch wouldn't budge. I was trying to get him back in, but he wouldn't stop hitting the cancel button on his control stick. At least, we were getting the signal that he was. The Gemini suit was flying off, and then one of the rubble pieces got tangled in the tether and the line-out assembly went. It pulled out of the hole, and and he was gone. He was tumbling, spinning, and I tried to get into a suit to grab him myself, but the airlock wouldn't open. Why didn't you and the captain go after him? We tried, but between patching the damage sustained in the accident and the extra time we had to take to navigate out of the debris field, he, he was more than six hours out of reach. That's the SOP amount of oxygen in the suit. His radio went live five minutes after he started flying away. We tried to talk to him. He didn't say anything. Partial transcript of investigation number 3945. Testimony of Elaine Hicks. Exhibit 17A. And is it your position, Captain Hicks, that the people under your command did their best to retrieve crewman wills? I believe with the limited resources at our disposal, they did, yes. 
And the charges against Bagley? I do believe they are not necessary at this time. It was a hard run. And what about the anomaly? I don't know what you mean. Did you consider trying again to retrieve it? Captain, answer the question. (sighs) It was gone. You could not place it on visual? Or radar, or short-range scans. It was just gone. The pile's collapse meant we had to be extra cautious negotiating our way out. And without any way to look for the anomaly, it was essentially irretrievable. And your thoughts on the value of the suit? Not enough. It can hurt, but we understand that, right? We're taught from an early age what could cause us harm. Think about it. How many things do you know would hurt you without ever experiencing them yourself? But someone must have, once upon a time. And in our next tale, shared with us by author Michael Harris Cohen, we meet a man whose job it is to learn about pain, and class is almost over. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett and Peter Lewis. So grit your teeth and prepare to keep up with the Joneses. It's a tough class to pass, but no pain, no gain, right? That's the secret to graduating. Jones comes back from his resuscitation, all smiles and high fives. Jones 4 whispers in my ear, Headshot again. Guns are generally a one or a two, if it's a headshot. Gutshot is a whole other number. I've been gutshot twice, a shotgun and a nine millimeter. Three times if you count the crossbow. The crossbow took the longest. I curled on the floor, skewered and bleeding out, unable to move without colossal pain. It took a long time to die. I rated it a six plus. Based on Jones 5's mood, it's pretty clear this was a headshot. The bullet's capsule, 12,000 pounds per square inch, drills the brain. A rapid flare of bright sound and pain, then lights out. Basically painless. Lucky five again, what a surprise. Four's got his sour look, a mouthful of mustard. Our faces are identical, but I don't think I make that expression. There's a rumor Jones 5 has some sort of connection, and that's why he gets the easy sessions. Of course, this rumor, like all rumors here, is unconfirmed. I'm philosophical when the topic of 5 comes up. We all die a certain number of sessions. What does it matter how? Focus on your work, I always say. Give good numbers. I turn to Jones 4. You don't know it was a headshot. Besides, pain is relative. That's why there are seven of us. Jones 5 crosses to the main table to watch Jones 6 play chess with Jones 2. Jones 5 lets out a whoop. He's the loudest of us, for sure. As 6 checkmates 2. 
No one has ever beaten Jones 6. I've come closest, almost gaining a draw, but 6 sees things we can't. He's moves ahead. Jones 5 starts talking about his session. His voice floods the room like water in a bucket. New RPG! Head exploded like a firecracker. Must have been a hell of a cleanup. Four shoots me a lemony. I told you so, look. He rolls his eyes. Sure. Relative. Anyway, what do you care? You're almost done. One session away from the gift. It's true. Only one left. Though I'd be lying if I said I wasn't nervous. Not about my last session. After 244 of them, I can endure anything once. It's the after that has me uneasy. What it holds, and what I know it doesn't. Dying is all I know. Soon, I won't even know that. I'll never die again. That's the gift, or so the rumor goes. No brother who graduated ever came back to confirm it. Jones 6 calls the gift our ontological carrot. I don't know what that means. What I know is I'll never see my brothers again. I'll be gone. This fact serves up a hard-to-pin feeling. It feels like staring at the ocean in the beach hollow, eyes straining across an impossibly vast and empty distance. It's loneliness, I think. But as I've never felt it, I can't be sure. I've started paying extra attention to the things my brothers do. I don't know what I'll miss or what I won't, so I try to catch everything. How Jones 1 cries in his sleep. A sound like some bright bird in the jungle hollow. The way Jones 2 noisily brushes his teeth. How he spits into the sink as if trying to lose a bad taste the brush can't reach. Jones 3 and his list of imagined future sessions. By helicopter blades. By bottomless holes. By rockets. By crucifixion. How Jones 5 jokes about being the handsomest of the bunch, and how 4 always gets riled by that, though it's absurd. The differences between us, physically anyway, are non-existent. Only Jones 6 looks older, as he's been here the longest. I watch 6 read in his corner, and wonder if I'll miss him. Our chess games, his cryptic comments and gruff voice. He looks up from his book and meets my eye, like he knows what I'm doing how I'm memorizing. He winks, then forgets me, returning to his fat book. He shakes his head, like the words he reads tickle the inside of it. He holds the all-time record for sessions, over 700, but his pain reports are terrible. He's rated napalm a 2 and a morphine OD a 9. He refuses to provide good data. Thus, Jones after Jones passes over him. He may never receive the gift. The strangest thing... He doesn't seem to care. He just reads and dies and reads and dies and cooks and dies and plays chess. Like he's perfectly happy doing sessions and staying here forever. He doesn't even use his daily hollow visits. When I asked him why, he just shook his head. Getting rid of delusions makes us wiser than getting hold of the truth. Whatever that means. The light over my cot goes on and I stand and put on my suit for the last time. Our white coveralls are identical except for the numbers. I trace my finger over my seven. Lucky seven. After I'm gone, Jones five will likely become Jones seven, skipping over six, just as I did. Most everyone will go up a number, except for six. Six nods from the table, 
He cooked me breakfast. He always does on the day of seven ships. Scrambled eggs and heaps of greasy bacon. The smell makes my stomach growl. I nod my appreciation and settle in across from him. Graduating. Moving on. I nod, my mouth already full of eggs. It always unnerves me, looking at my older self. There might be a year or two difference among the rest of us, but it's hard to detect. Everyone but six is a mirror. The same close-cropped dark hair, the same narrow nose and thin lips, identical black coffee eyes. Joan Six has all that, too, but his hair is gray-splashed. Wrinkles graph his skin. There's something different in his eyes, too. He points to the chessboard. Last game? I shrug. He sets up the pieces, offers me white. I finish my breakfast and open my queen's pawn. What do you think they'll choose for your final session? I wipe bacon grease off my chin. I've obviously considered this question, but I don't say anything. Conversation with Six often feels like a trap, like the chess game doesn't only happen on the board. We trade knights. Jones 5 pulls up a chair and studies the board. He's always listening, always jumping into things, something I'm certain I won't miss. I'm betting on fire. Among us, it's generally agreed that fire is one of the worst. Your skin blisters, your blood boils, you smell your own death. Jones 1 is the lone abstainer, but he hasn't suffered as many immolations as the rest of us. Six makes a mistake and leaves his bishop unprotected. I take it, and he winces. Not a big fan of drowning. That moment when you can't hold your breath, the first suck of water in the lungs. Agony. Five leans in closer. Yeah, but with burning, seconds feel like years. These are recycled conversations, old as the hollow hills, though they never grow dull. I'll miss them. You learn a lot when you understand what session a brother most fears. In a little while, I'm up three pieces and have a serious position advantage. The game is mine to lose. Six really must be getting old. I feel giddy about my first victory against Six. Whatever it is, it's the last one. I can endure anything once, even skinning. Five shudders and Six smiles. Five and I smile back. It's a reflex. When one of us smiles, the others can't help but do the same, as if to do otherwise would be to ignore the face in the mirror. Skinning is, everyone agrees, one of the worst. Easily a nine. Tedious and excruciating. It's worse than anything except some deaths by animal. Six still smiles, though I put him in check three times and will mate him soon. His smile is bigger than mine. Wrinkles split his face. Whatever they've got in store is for the good of science. Those words have power for us. A motto. A mantra. They ease our fears and swell our chests. We all have faith in science. Science made us. Science brings us back to life. Science constructs our food from thin air. Science created the miracle of the hollows and the gift. Whatever it is. But when Six says the words, they sound wrong. Somehow soured. He topples his king, and I stretch my smile till it hurts, trying to match his. That's right. For the good of science. None of us knows why they gave us the hollows. Some brothers believe it's to prepare us for the outside world. Of course, since we don't know the outside world at all, this rumor is unconfirmed and merely plausible. Others say the hollows keep us from going mad from the sessions, 
This rumor is also unconfirmed, but seems more probable, since Jones 6, the only one who skips his hollow visits, is definitely not what the rest of us consider sane. I put on the helmet for the last hollow before my session. I've tried them all. City, driving, swimming, flying, all the others. But I'm partial to the nature hollows, the wonder of the outdoors. Hand in the air, I select beach. I adjust the knobs. The test pattern sharpens. The beach comes into view. Sun on water. My eyes squint. A white bird dangles in the breeze. I pivot my head, and there's the hollow guy. Same as always. He's one of us. Exactly the same, except his coveralls are black. He smiles. I smile back. He closes his eyes, breathes in the ocean. I mirror his seated posture, bunched up knees, hands spread in the sand. I study his profile. I'm nearly sure he's the last seven to graduate, though there's no way to confirm it. I smell salt. I hear the surf's crash like radio static, the white bird's angry squawks. Touch is the only thing missing, and therefore is the thing I spend the most time imagining in the hollows. What does the sand feel like? Is it wet? Sticky? The breeze that blows the face that is my face, the hair that is my hair. What does that feel like? The hollow guy's eyes remain closed. He holds an expression I can't ever read. Not yet, anyway. His skin is smooth as an iron sheet. I wonder again if he exists when I'm not here. I wonder again if he wonders if I exist. He won't respond, but still I speak. This is my last hollow. I'm graduating. He smiles as if he hears me. I smile back. I ask the questions I always ask. Is this where we go? After the gift? Are the hollows real? Are you? He opens his eyes. Maybe he nods slightly. If I could feel in the hollows, I'd reach out and touch him. I've done it, of course, but it's too weird. Touching someone and feeling nothing. He turns away and watches a wide-winged bird circle above. Its call echoes, then cuts off as the hollow flickers and goes blank. Time's up. Usually I feel elated after the hollows. Most of us do, like our world has expanded, like we're momentarily part of something larger than our daily routine. But this time it's different. I don't know why. My head sweats inside the hollow helmet. It's a long time before I take it off. My brothers gather around me. We shake hands. They pat me on the back. We huddle as Jones III says his habitual prayer, a litany of all his deaths so far. By water? By Ebola? By snake? By strangulation? The consensus is that three has gone mad. It happens, though we're all silent and respectful when he prays. Three was always different. He came back from his first session sunny and smiling. Jones seven, it was Jones five at that time, asked if it was decapitation, which is quick. Barely a one plus. Decapitation leaves some guys euphoric. Jones three, who was Jones one then, shook his head. Boiled the life. A seven or eight, and a pretty harsh first session. Still, he smiled, and so did we all. He spread his hands and exclaimed, What a beautiful thing to be reborn. He finally finishes the prayer. All for the good of science. We nod and repeat the words. All for the good of science. 
My tension lifts slightly. Jones 5 shakes my hand. Good luck outside. We'll keep suffering for the greater good. For the good of science. My spine feels straighter. My hands shake firmer. Jones 4 rolls his eyes as 5 moves away. Some suffer more than others. I smile. He smiles. I tell 4 to focus on his sessions, to keep his eyes on the gift. Jones 6 is the last to say goodbye. He steps up and stares me in the eyes. My smile waits to spring into action, but he doesn't draw his. His eyes burn like he wants to tell me something important, something new. Instead, he just says the same enigmatic thing he always says when a seven leaves. There are worse things than dying. I feel sad he's afraid to move on, afraid to change. But I break out my smile. Like your eggs, rubbery as a shoe sole. He smiles back and raises both thumbs, though his eyes are gloomy, the flicker gone, like overcast skies in the mountain hollow. I stand by the door as the green light blinks. I spread my smile as wide as it can go. I wave goodbye to my six grinning brothers as the door slides open and I step into the corridor for the last time. They'll have a new Jones One soon. I'm sure they'll treat him well. They made me feel at home right away. An instant family. And I tried to do the same for each new arrival. Jones Ones are always disoriented. None of us remember anything before arrival. I always made them a cup of tea and introduced them around. I'd tell a few jokes while the others grimaced. They'd heard them too many times. I'd show the ones the hollow machine, explain that someday we'd maybe be like the hollow guy, outside and free. I never told them what they'd have to do to get there. They discovered that on their own. It seems cruel, but we all went through it. Plus, their first reading is more accurate if they don't know what awaits. When they return from their first session... That's when they truly become family. Sometimes they cry when they understand what we do. Some rage or hurt themselves. Some sit frozen, staring into space. We'd always hold a party. It was the only time the researchers sent in alcohol, a case of beer and bottles of whiskey. By the end of the night, drunk and singing, the new Jones One's tears usually mingled with laughter. What we do, few can do. What we do, few can do. What we do, few can do. We'd clink our glasses across the table and three would stand up, swiveling his hips. We're gods and saints. We suffer like saints. For the good of science. I'd shout. We'd all shout. Jones Six would drink, but hardly talk. He'd wait for the new Jones One to ask the question. Sometimes it came right away. Sometimes later, eventually they'd always ask. When they did, Six would smile, and therefore we all would, including the new guy. Six would lean forward, his words a little slurred. Exactly. Why, my brother? The eternal question. The walk down the corridor is often the worst. It's the not knowing that gets to one. Will it be a tank full of piranhas? A new type of acid in a glass beaker. A harmless-looking liquid that eats off one's face. Usually I focus on my breathing and conjure a scene from the hollows. I'll imagine the desert or the snow-covered forest. If I concentrate, I can see snow falling, dizzying flakes piling into mounds. 
But today, as it's my last walk, I relish the anticipation. I even wonder if I'll miss it. I pay attention to each step down this winding corridor, marking it. Someday, all of this may be a story to tell. A thing I'll share with someone I don't yet know. I reach the laboratory, and the researcher, a thin man I've never seen, stands by his instruments, dressed in the researcher's usual green coveralls. The only other place I've seen this color is in the mountain hollow. It's the color of the grass. I scan the room. I don't see cages or smell animals, so I doubt I'll be eaten. There's no fire or drowning chamber either. I relax a little as the researcher pats the examination table, and I hop up. He, like the other researchers, is not one for small talk. He rolls up my sleeve and produces a hypodermic from a numbered case. I raise my eyebrows. They generally don't answer questions, but since it's the last session, I can't help myself. Poison? He shakes his head and taps the air bubbles out of the syringe. Some sort of neurotoxin? Straight up gasoline? I've had variations on both. Most are slow and in the mid-six range. One neurotoxin paralyzed me, but didn't take away sensation. They lowered my immobile body into a container filled with small insects that nibbled away. Death took a long time. That was a solid eight. I swallow as he swabs my skin with an alcohol-soaked pad. None of the above. This is the gift. He jabs the needle into the meat of my shoulder. The pain is less than a one. More like a point zero one. I thought I had one more session. My expression must have been one of alarm, because he pats me on the shoulder. Something a researcher has never done. Usually they're all business. Men of few words, let alone comforting pats. Relax. You've... you've died your last death. Hmm? I sit on the lab table, waiting to feel something. Some poison feels like an advancing fire, scorching its path to the heart. Others start in the gut or head, gathering storms that gust with pain. But this feels like nothing. The researcher stares at his watch and whistles. None of us can whistle, but I'm always impressed when the researchers do. I get lost in his tune until his head snaps up and he rolls down my sleeve. That's it. That's all? You were expecting something else? More technological fanfare, hmm? I shrug, but inside I'm nodding vigorously. You might not feel different, but you are. You can't die, ever. Whatever disease or accident befalls you, your body will regenerate. Here, allow me to demonstrate. He pulls out a scalpel from the pocket of his coveralls. With a swift backhand, he slices my throat. The cut is deep, but hardly painful. Maybe a two minus. After decapitation, having your throat slit is probably the easiest session. Warm blood spurts through my hands as they reflexively cover the gash. The researcher glances at his watch. Ooh, of course you'll still feel pain. <laughs> but you're hardly a stranger to that. He smirks as I gasp for air and gurgle. This, I believe, is his attempt at a joke, though I can't be sure. I try a face that models his, though it's not easy as I'm choking on blood and can't catch my breath. Still, I do my best to echo his smirk and look casual as blood seeps through my coveralls, as I grow faint. 
He produces a hand mirror and passes it to me. I lift my bloodied hands to take it. Watch. The crack in my throat curves like a smile. I fade, closer to death. Then, an itching sensation stirs at my throat. I watch in the mirror as the wound pulls together, sewing itself shut. After another minute, there's no sign of the injury on my skin, only my bloody coveralls. The pain drops to a zero. My expression in the mirror is brand new. Eyes wide, mouth open. I've never been so amazed. Not even in my first hollow sessions. Neat, huh? No more unpleasant resuscitations. You struggled with those, didn't you? It's true. Except for Jones 5, who's perpetually cheerful, and 3, who calls the resuscitations resurrections, the process leaves us queasy and weak. It's even worse than some of the sessions. Being reborn ain't for sissies, 4 used to say. Time to go. <laughs> he smiles for the first time. His teeth, unlike ours, are yellow and crooked. The imperfection of them troubles me, but I smile back, happy to mirror his face. I think of my brothers as the researcher leads me down a brightly lit corridor, a part of the building I've never seen. What would they say if they could see me now? Immortal and dressed in black coveralls, just like the hollow guy. I wonder if they'll see me in the hollow. I wonder what they're doing with the new Jones One, whether someone tells him my worn-out jokes before his first session. Or perhaps I've lost track of time after receiving the gift. Maybe Jones One already returned from his first session, already voiced the inevitable question. Perhaps alcohol-soaked talk has turned to why we don't know why. It would influence our readings, Five always says. We'd feel pain differently. They keep us in the dark or we'd screw up the data. Exactly. I imagine Jones Four might say, wishing him a rare moment of agreement with Five. What does it matter whether it's for weapons development or a pharmaceutical company? Clearly the work is important. Jones Three, as always, would hold a more radical theory. They're making us messiahs. Or, they want a sense of the soul's mass and shape. Death is not the point. The point is recording the soul's exit and trajectory. For, for the, the good, good of science. science, they'll all say and raise their glasses. All but six. I utter the words in the corridor. The researcher smiles. Of course he smiles. He is science. We turn a corner, and an even longer corridor stretches before us. The researcher stops and pulls out a touch tablet. He scrolls on it, and I wait behind. Down the hallway is a series of large windows, though from here I can't see what's inside the rooms. Next to the windows, the vitals monitors they use for our sessions line the walls like black paintings. I know paintings from the museum hollow, one I never thought much of, though Five claimed it was his favorite. He said the hollow guy has excellent taste in art, though how Five knows this I can't say. For me, it's just the same hollow guy, silent asleep. All he does is point and smile and stare. Room 344. Just had to double check. Wouldn't want to put you in the wrong room. He starts whistling again, and I give it another shot. After the gift, who knows what I might be able to do. I purse my lips and, for the first time, manage a warmly note as I follow. I suck in a breath and try again. But when we reach the first window, 
My mouth slackens, and the air leaks out of me. I once had a conversation with Six, back when I was only Jones too. My debriefers had told me my numbers were excellent, some of the best they'd seen. They told me I'd rise quickly, that I might be the fastest to ever receive the gift. I'd come back from my resuscitation with the usual nausea, but also elated, bouncing on my toes. I told Six about it as we played chess. He blitzkrieged me in ten moves, but even that couldn't spoil my mood. People give gifts when they want something. They give gifts as an expression of love, too. They give gifts when they want to say thank you. He held my king in his hand, swinging it back and forth before letting it tumble to the board. Gifts are barter. There's always an agenda. Think about it, Jones. What's in it for them? I'd remembered something he'd read to me. I served it back with a smile. He that dies pays all debts. Pure, simple truth. He smiled back, but shook his head. The truth is rarely pure, and never simple. On the other side of the glass, a brother stands in the center of the room. He stares at me, I think, though it's hard to tell because he's bleeding out of his eyeballs. Smoke rises off his body in waves. Even from this side of the glass, I know what the smoke smells like. I've been electrocuted enough times to memorize that odor. It's an overcooked piece of meat. It's rancid barbecue. His body vibrates with the current, though there are no wires. Glancing at his smoldering feet, I realize the electricity comes from the floor. The monitor by the window charts his vitals. The whole column of data scrolls down next to the jagged mountain peaks of his heartbeat. The line of his heart shudders, then finally goes flat. The researcher steps up to watch. This is the best part. Wait for it. Immediately, the monitor line spikes back up as his heart revives. His feet, that had just started to slightly pinken, blacken again as the power jolts back on. No resuscitation is necessary. The gift prevents him from dying. I force a smile, just to see if he can see me. He smiles back. His teeth are bloody. The researcher tugs at my coveralls. Come on, you're just down here. We pass a room where another brother is submerged in water. He gulps his last breath, dies, then comes alive. His face twists from my least favorite agony. The next room is filled with army ants. Only arms are visible as we move past, rising from the swarming insects as though he's waving. Another room has a Jones buried in his neck in ice. I study the face. It's the last Jones Seven, I think. The one who graduated before me. Though I can't be sure. The glass is frosted from the cold, and his features are indistinct and blued. I smile. He smiles. Freezing isn't so bad, I think. It's like falling asleep. Barely a two. In another room, there's a giant concrete block. No brother visible. But the monitor shows a heartbeat. One of us is in there. I stumble on, my feet not feeling the floor, legs rubbery. Here we are. The researcher presses his badge to the wall, and the door to room 344 swings open. My brain screams, run, but my legs march into the room. I stand still as a hollow tree as he affixes wireless sensors to my heart and temples. 
You thought you'd be getting out of here, didn't you? My mouth opens and closes like I'm being suffocated. He shakes his head. His expression is impossible to read. It's between disgust and sadness. You guys always do. And they had to give you all the normal emotions for the numbers to be good. Even hope. But what about the hollows? He makes a funny sound like a squeaky hinge. I realize he's laughing, and I mimic it. Both of us laugh. His laughter dies out, and he shakes his head. Do you know what we call the hollows? The box of hollow hopes. Hope is the last thing to die in you lab rats. He closes the door of the room and waves from outside the window. He gives that strange look again. I know the word pity, but I've never seen the face. Maybe this is it. Then he's gone. There's a stretched moment before I know what my endless session will be. Fire or acid raining from the ceiling. The ceiling itself lowering to meet the floor. Infinite hornet stings. Gassing. I shut my eyes. I envision the beach hollow. Only this time my brothers are there with me. All of us together by the sea. Even Six. Hell is other people, Six once said. And though I understand what he meant, I don't think he's right. Hell is something else. Unseen machinery whirs. With my eyes closed, the sound becomes a sea wind. A wind on my face, caressing my skin. Our skin. A sea gust that blows forever. A sea wind my brothers and I can finally feel. For the good of science, I say. We all say. I feel a little better. I say it again. For the good of science. When you're out at night exploring alone, the darkness can hold countless terrors. Who knows what lurks in those shadows or behind that rock? Not a single clue what's out there or where you're going. What you need is a beacon. But in this tale, shared with us by author Stuart Hardy, we learn that sometimes even a light in the darkness can lead to shocking scares. Performing this tale are David Alt, Andy Cresswell, and Erica Sanderson. So head towards the glow. It's got to offer respite, right? Or maybe it's just luring you in, in to the abandoned factory. One evening, I saw a light on in the old abandoned factory up on the hillside. It was just as the sun was setting, and it was either on the fourth or fifth floor, I couldn't tell which. It almost made it look as though the giant shadowy monolith sticking out of the skyline were an enormous one-eyed severed head 
staring grimly out across the ruined city below. I'd never been inside before, but I knew I just had to go and explore on this occasion. I decided not to wait until the morning, and just set off up the weather-beaten path and through the rusty iron gates. There were still a few car wrecks spread out across the parking lot here and there, broken down hunks of metal lying dismembered and disemboweled in their silent graveyard. As I approached, I shone my torchlight across the front wall of the building. The beam occasionally hovered through broken windows and illuminated the leaking, cracked and empty rooms on the first and ground floors. I slowed up, stopped and stood stock still just before I reached the front entrance and trained my ear for any surrounding noise. The winds were calm today, no sounds of life echoing in the distance. No sounds of life from whatever had turned the light on upstairs in the silent factory. The landscape was desolate and still. The entrance, once panelled with glass, was now just a gaping hatch with the wreckage of what had once been a rotating turnstile system running through the middle. I cautiously stepped through as I heard the building above me creaking, almost as if in response to the new and unexpected presence. I was well aware that this would be very dangerous, as I had no idea how old the factory was and how well it had or hadn't withstood the blast, but I didn't care. I was curious. There was nothing else to do, so why not? I stepped through into the wide open reception area. The walls were bleached and had turned a faded sepia color. Holes, cracks, and broken plasterboard marred the walls, ceiling, and floor of the once pristine entrance to the factory. The reception desks ahead of me lay in pieces under a pile of rubble that had fallen from a gaping hole in the ceiling. I briefly wondered whether it had been manned at the time of the blast, and the wreckage had crushed whoever had worked there. I continued through one of the open doorways opposite the front entrance and through to a similarly bleached and ruined corridor. A large section of the ceiling ahead of me had collapsed, and the fissure above gave way to the sight of a corridor on the floor above. The floor ahead of me was covered in plaster and shattered tiles, and there was a huge pile of rubble down at the other end that blocked off the door, but I managed to climb up that with ease. I stepped through the fissure at the top of the pile of rubble and found myself at an intersection of passageways that had been punctured by holes and fractures in the plaster and the brickwork beneath. High above the wall ahead of me, there was a gaping hole that offered a glimpse into the cavernous factory floor beyond. The corridor ahead of me stretched out seemingly for miles and was lined with mostly intact doors. To the right of me and below, I could see what looked like a canteen through a hole in the floor. I knelt and peered down through the ceiling. There were still some tables standing among the rubble where the humans used to sit and eat their lunch together and chat about their day, their home lives, their love lives, their hobbies, their families. All of them would be dead and long gone by now. I wandered along the corridor and tried a few of the doors and found that most of them were locked. I then stumbled across another hole in the wall further down and to my left, which led directly out onto the factory floor. I gazed up in awe as I stepped out into the dead production line. I could barely begin to focus my eyes on any one detail of the decaying surface of the turbine above me. 
It was a chaotic tangle of different shades of rust. I've no idea what the rusted and disheveled machinery that miraculously still hung above me actually made. I had no idea what the humans were actually doing wandering along those grated steel walkways that somehow still littered the floors above and connected the industrial units. They'd stroll between the intricate entanglement of mechanisms and conveyor belts and operate the machines themselves. I still find it so strange that humans used to operate machines themselves, all manual like that. They could have just automated all of this. They could have gotten rid of their entire workforce and just built a few of us and set us to work. It would only have taken a few of us to run all of this, I'm sure of it. I still don't understand why automation became such an issue for them, and why they persisted with segregation and forced deconstruction of my mechanical brethren in their later years. I turned around and scanned the far wall in the direction I'd come from, and saw the dim light that had piqued my curiosity in the first place shining out of a puncture in the wall high above. Hunting around at the front wall of the factory, I managed to find a stairwell. Fortunately, the route upwards was mostly intact until I reached the third floor where the stone steps had collapsed and there was just an unstable platform jutting out of the ground, gesturing towards the gash in the corridor above. Craning my neck to the sky, I saw the dim light poking out of a severed corridor a couple of floors above me. It was only now that I was this close that I could just about hear a faint tapping sound. It was very slow and soft, but it stood out in the all but silent factory. I decided to go exploring on the third floor to see if I could find any other route upwards from there. The floor wasn't as stable as it had been on the first, and I found one direction gave way to a collapsed corridor, but doubling back on myself, I managed to make my way past a few more doors and down to another corner of the factory. I could still hear the ceaseless tapping from upstairs. It didn't have much of a rhythm to it. The frequency of the taps was rather erratic. I was used to keyboard noises being a continuous pace that was timed and precise. That was always how I remembered offices. I shuddered as a terrifying thought crawled across my brain. My experiences with offices had always been with my fellow androids. That was the difference here. Unnerved and with my mind racing, trying to visualize what could possibly be waiting for me upstairs, I pressed on and finally stumbled across an open door to an office on my left that overlooked the parking lot out at the front. The windows had been shattered, but the office itself had held up well. There was a crack in the wall to my left, and there was broken plaster scattered all about the place, but it was still recognizably an office. There were desks laid out in a neat little grid, the wreckage of computers with faded and weathered casings, and shattered screens staring blankly out at empty chairs ahead of them. I apprehensively approached a desk nearby and felt a chill as I noticed a shadowy presence beneath the wooden back that shielded its contents from view. I picked up a cracked photo frame that was lying on the desk. There was a picture of a female human and another much smaller female human in the frame. The little female human was on the big female human's shoulders and they were stood by a palm tree on a beach somewhere beneath clear blue skies. 
I remember when there were clear blue skies. I held the picture up and compared it to the expressionless, eyeless corpse huddled beneath the desk. You wouldn't recognize her now. They all look the same underneath. All the other office workers were like that. Bodies curled up under the desks in abject terror. I don't suppose any of them survived long past the impact. One male human had managed to crawl as far as the door before his body had given out. There were always anomalies to these kinds of things. I left the depressing sight of the office and found that the next stairwell provided me with the path I required to the floor with the last light left on. The insidiously imprecise tapping got louder and louder and even more off-putting as I edged my way past more and more locked offices. As I neared the glimmer of light shining out from the open door up ahead, I could feel my heart whirring faster and faster in anticipation. Peering around the corner, I saw some bare shoulders juddering across a keyboard. The desk sat facing the painless window gazing down across the ruined city below the hillside. The pale human in the worn and tattered leather office chair sat with his back turned from me, barely conscious of the world around him. A floorboard creaked as I stepped into the room. The tapping ceased. I froze. He sat, and I stood there for some time, each of us transfixed by the other's presence. After that terrible moment of stillness, the human broke the tension and started tapping again. I could hear him now, mumbling to himself. Gotta get finished, finished. Gotta get finished, finished, finished. He just kept on with that harsh, repetitive whisper, only ever uttering those same three words. Gotta get finished, finished, finished. The computer screen was smashed in. He wasn't even doing anything, but he just kept tapping away in spite of it all, mumbling to himself about whatever it was that he thought he was doing. I focused my eye on the keyboard just past his left wrist and saw that it was stained with blood. It appeared as though he'd been slamming the keys until the skin on his fingers had worn away. Humans were exactly how I remembered them. Obsessive. Finished, finished, finished. I wondered how this one had survived up here for so long. I may not have remembered much about humans, but I was pretty sure that they needed food, water, and in this case, certainly anti-radiation drugs to stay alive at all. Who are you? He slowly swiveled his chair around and looked at me. His shaggy grey hair and beard had become densely matted. His naked, emaciated body was covered in sores and dead skin where he'd been scratching himself. His body shuddered as he pushed himself out of his chair and to his feet. He was clearly not used to standing. He'd been so enraptured by whatever he thought he'd been doing at the broken computer for such a long time. He stumbled towards me, furrowing his brow and focusing his eyes on the machine that stood before him. The naked light bulb above my head flickered as he approached, and the disheveled, colorless old human stared at me in wonder. It was almost as if he recognized me, and strangely I felt as though I recognized him from somewhere. I couldn't help thinking that we might have known each other a very, very long time ago. Then, suddenly, I felt a strange force inside my chest. 
there was a buzz and a click, and I began a playback function. A very faint and fuzzy recording started playing out of my mouth. It was a little girl's voice, a voice I recognized. She was muffled and barely audible, but I could hear her crying and softly stuttering a few final words. Please come home, Daddy. Please. Please come home. There was another click inside of me. The disheveled old human then vanished into thin air. The light went out at that moment and there was nothing. I stood there in the darkness for the longest time. I saw nothing but the faint shimmer of the light of the moon illuminating the old broken computer sat on the desk before me. I heard nothing but the occasional sounds of the old abandoned factory creaking in the silence of the wasteland. No more typing. No more muttering. Everyone had gone home for the night. Cops must see all manner of weird things. Unsolved mysteries, strange disappearances, crop circles, and some of the bizarre and reckless behavior they deal with. Sometimes they must wonder if certain people are brainless. But in this tale, shared with us by author Dustin Chisholm, we meet a cop dealing with a perp who seems especially empty-headed. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Wafia White, Peter Lewis, Mick Wingert, and Ellie Hirschman. So hit the lights and read those rights, because we're about to investigate some weird, weird science. Just make sure you look over your shoulder, because you might be observed by eyes that see. It seemed like a waste of Otto's skills to go near the outskirts of town while I was on patrol. There were plenty of other police officers who could handle the rural parts of town. But having one of the department's only four canines meant I felt obligated to keep him where most of the action is. Granted, there were plenty of meth dealers who liked to set up shop out in the country. But right now... I was parked side by side with Merrill Beckett, another officer in the department, just shooting the breeze. We knew the lull wasn't going to last much longer, but I didn't want to tear myself away from my co-worker just yet. I know Starbucks closed two hours ago, but you have to take Otto in to get a puppuccino sometime. He'll flip his lid when he gets that first taste. And blow his ass an hour later. Sorry, he's got a little bit of a delicate constitution. And keep him on a strict diet. Aw, Daddy's such a tyrant, isn't he, Otto? The Dutch Shepherd wagged his tail happily. I know he loved me, but he seemed over the moon for Merrill. <laughs> Despite what I said earlier about keeping him in the city, 
Tonight we were as close to the edge of town as I usually cared to go. My home is a typical Midwest city, islanded in a rural expanse, the urban facade eventually evaporating into trees and fields. So when the radio put out two calls, one for a domestic disturbance, the other regarding an intoxicated individual, Merrill and I decided I'd take the latter. We said our goodbyes and parted ways. The dispatcher relayed that he looked homeless and was wandering down a country road, shouting at the air. Once we were on the road, I apologized to Otto. Maybe you can bite his nuts for me. We won't let this be a complete waste of your valuable time, okay, buddy? Otto loved the sound of my voice, which he heard more than just about anyone else. Without taking my eyes off the road, I reached over my shoulder and scratched his ears. How about a mommy? You want a mommy? You think Meryl would make a good mommy? He yipped in agreement, but he did that to everything I said. I could ask if I should kick the Pope in the nuts and he'd go gaga as long as I said it in baby talk. His silly demeanor lasted only until I gave the right command, but that was who he really was. The dense asteroid field of subdivisions cleared out to become the occasional stray meteoroids that were country homes. I was given the address of the private residence the call had come from. The next house was another mile in the direction the suspect had been heading. If I didn't find him walking by the side of the road, I might have to double back and shine my spotlight in the ditches. If he hopped a barbed wire and shambled off into the woods, I wasn't going to find him. The moon was new, as was the cloud cover rolling in to blot out the stars. No nearby streetlights, and the distant few might as well have been fireflies. Forget the suspect, I was worried about deer. I flicked on my brights, and the two ovals on the gravel road exploded in size, but not utility. They only revealed more gravel, and more detail therein. Our new friend shouldn't be too far ahead, Otto. Get ready. I was pretty sure I could handle the frail guide Dispatch had described to me. Otto's nose wasn't going to get much of a workout, and the only thing his teeth were going to pulverize tonight was probably kibble. He could happily chill in the back seat while I took care of... I speak of the devil. There he was. He was tottering down the middle of the road, and the first thing I thought, that whatever impaired him, wasn't a substance. He didn't seem to take seven steps when he meant to take only one. He wasn't staggering. He seemed almost blind, with his feet slowly feeling out the next step before landing. His short-sleeved shirt and jean shorts were so threadbare that they could have been long once upon a time. Otto was looking intently at the man. That might not seem like a big deal, but canines are so well-trained that they tend not to react like other dogs unless you hit that on switch. That's why they don't go ape shit at everyone who walks too close to the car. But something about the haggard, cadaverous figure illuminated by my headlights broke his usual chill. The man didn't seem to react to my presence. He never once turned his head to look at me, and he didn't change direction or slow down. 
He was dead to the world, as far as I could tell. And he continued his uneven path as I radioed it in. Radio in once I assess the situation. Over. Otto whined, still transfixed by the man. Finally, I got out, the gravel crunching beneath my polished regulation shoes, and I withdrew my flashlight. The man was trotting out of the path of my headlights. Still, I was confident in how this would go. I heard what he was saying before I closed the distance. My sun is shining on me. It's hot in here, sir, and I can... I can... Uh... Sir, do you need assistance? But I already knew I was going to be calling medical. This was just a formality. I stepped a little closer, because to radio this in, I needed a few more details. I didn't want to just say, white male of indeterminate age, but that's how he looked from here. He could have been a worn 20 or a preserved 60. His eyes were downcast, and he gave no sign he knew I was there. Sir, can you hear me? Evidently, he couldn't, as he turned to look away from me, and only by chance did his gaze fall upon me. There was a blackness to his face that couldn't be explained by the late hours. Sir, I'm doing a wellness check so I can assess your situation. Can you hold still for me? His pace slowed, but I could tell it wasn't because of me. Sir... I'm going to have to place my hands on you. It's only to assess your condition. Still, his head lolled as he continued to step forward. Well, he obviously wasn't in much of a condition to resist, so I gently took a hold of one of his shoulders and shined the flashlight in his face, prepared to go through my memorized line of questions. I didn't get that far. His eyes were gone. Not only that, but shining my light into the empty sockets revealed only the white of bone on the other side. His eyes and his brain were gone. Twelve weeks in the police academy didn't prepare you for this, and my heels and feet seemed to forget the proper order for locomotion as I back away. I didn't even realize I was moving until I felt the crash guard on the bumper of my cruiser nudge me in the ass. The guy clearly wasn't dangerous. It almost seemed grotesque to have to read him his rights for the sake of procedure, when the only danger he represented was to my sanity and view of the world. Otto, ever vigilant, started barking before I heard the thudding in the brush by the side of the road. I had a remote in my pocket that would open the back seat door of my cruiser and let him out. The only mistake I made was waiting to see what was coming before I reached for it. And that was enough. The grass parted, and I knew my hesitation would cost me. The man was a giant with a dull, flat, brutish face framed by stringy black hair. He only wore a pair of overalls, and everything about him screamed of unrefined strength. 
I saw a ham-hock of a fist rush into my vision, and stars flared briefly before the cosmos went out. The few bright spots in the blackness guided me back as the ringing in my ears coalesced into voices. The multiple lights swirled like melted caramel into a single one. A sudden squeak of hinges brought the light blindingly close to my face, and I couldn't stop myself from wincing before thinking to play possum. The jolt of movement flared up the pain, causing the ringing in my ears to crescendo and the spots to return. Awake now, now, Officer Summers? The voice, tremulous and weak from possible disuse, came from right next to me. I would have bolted in surprise if we're not for the leather bands around my wrists and ankles. I moaned, and the stifled sound of my voice alerted me to the dirty cloth gag over my mouth. It tasted like it had been used to dust three old Victorian mansions before finding itself stuffed in my face. Please forgive my shortcomings. I'm a man of science and medicine, but not of criminality. If I were more of a career criminal, I could have easily caught young Jacob before you wandered into our little story. A small, wild-haired old man stepped where I could see him. He wore the worst possible thing a captor of mine could wear. A bloody medical smock. I'll explain more inside. I was starting to get a bearing on my surroundings. An unevenly dug tunnel, braced with wooden beams, and a light bulb illuminating my prison. It stunk like wet, earthy rot. Heavy approaching footsteps cut through the haze. The behemoth that I was already mentally calling Hilljack the Barbarian trundled into view and grabbed the bar at the end of the metal gurney I was strapped to and pulled. The wheels squeaked horrendously, but my two captors didn't mind the din. And that seemed as good a time as any to feel for my belt. The strap wasn't directly affixed to the table, instead being attached to a couple of chain links and bolted in. Just enough range of movement for me to confirm that my gun belt was gone. They had taken my radio too, of course. But a bulge in the watch pocket of my pants let me know they had forgotten one thing. I pressed it, felt the click, and hoped we weren't too far from my cruiser. Otto was my only hope. After seeing the smock, I had immediately labeled the old man as a mad scientist. I was proven right when our destination was revealed to be a lab. The blindingly white sterility was a shock to my strained senses, and the pounding sped up again. But the fuzz finally tapered off, and I was able to discern humming machinery lining the walls, connected to a gigantic mandala of metal cylinders. The arrangement was almost beautiful with the patterns and placements. The horrid squealing of the gurney came to an end as Hilljack stopped, placing my gurney perpendicular to the operating table. They couldn't have spoken their intentions more clearly. 
Now, Rupert here says you got a good look at our subject. Unless you think you've encountered some cosmic horror... It was a tank, bubbling with the life the organs inside pulsed with. And there they were at the top. A pair of robin's egg-blue eyes, floating aimlessly in front of its brain like a kite on a breezy day. The bobbing of the optic nerves was almost hypnotic, like the tendrils of a jellyfish. All of the cylinders opened, revealing every organ you could name inside and many of each. Say hello to Jacob, Officer Summers. He can see you now. Jacob, how many fingers am I holding up? You hold none as you clasp your hands behind your back in supreme self-satisfaction. I craned my head and saw Jacob's body milling about aimlessly. It's all quite simple. Remove organs from the human body and connect them to this machine. Said machine keeps them working and connected to their former owners, if not by flesh. Electrical impulses fire and are carried through the disconnected nerves like radio waves. The same with blood and all bodily fluids. Just imagine... Soldiers going to war who can no longer suffer mortal injuries, or, or, or patients who require numerous heart or brain surgeries no longer have to suffer more than one invasive procedure. Huh? Imagine the possibilities. Oh, there's also real-time observation and treatment of serious illness. And he actually shuddered and squealed like a teenage girl. Can you just imagine... He seemed to notice the gag for the first time when I didn't respond. Uh, go ahead, Rupert. I, I want to hear his thoughts. Twelve weeks in the police academy does not automatically make me a hero or my judgment beyond reproach. But I owed it to my position to at least face whatever was coming with dignity. I didn't start screaming when Rupert pulled my gag down. Impressive. Very impressive. I'll be more impressed if you get to the point. That seemed to be enough for them, as Rupert quickly replaced the gag. I didn't like trouble, and I liked accomplishing things few people did. I couldn't quite see the table, but the squeaking and the smell of rust told me it was old and rickety. I felt like a bit of a meathead for not being clever enough to use my brains to get out of this. But hey, it was my brain that made the decision that set me on this path. So, close enough. I started to pull, trying to break at least one of the leather straps. The scientist reached to his nose to adjust glasses he wasn't wearing. Oh, hi. I'm so sorry for boring you, along with everything else. I don't get much of a chance to talk about this important work. <laughs> I watched all those Bond movies where the villains didn't do the smart thing and just shoot Bond instead of monologuing. <laughs> Jacob, stop messing with your eyes!
promised I'd be good. You believed me when I said I got dizzy and just wandered off, did you not? Yes, yes, but you're not allowed to touch the tanks, remember? Jacob said nothing and wandered off again. I guess that was his specialty. It took a few seconds for the doctor to seem to remember I was there. Where was I? Oh, oh yes, 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 yes. Now that I'm in this situation, as a man of science, there's nothing I fight against more than not knowing. And I can't bring myself to risk your life and not have you know why. Hmm. He chewed his pinky nail absent-mindedly. Risk my life? He wasn't planning on killing me outright? He answered the question before I could ponder it further. I heard the faint clattering of bottles in the distance, but the doctor was too engrossed in his ramblings to notice. Every successive procedure brings me closer to perfection. My goal is to make this as quick and simple as an appendectomy. I think I can pull from another procedure. Uh, maybe I'll take a kidney and, and that'll buy your silence. I mean, I'm no killer. We'll have you back on your feet in no time. You might need to be a little discreet in the locker room or with any lady in your life. Or, or man, I'm not, I'm not judging. He stopped, scratching hair that didn't look to have an ounce of moisture in it. Oh, no, uh, scratch that. There's the recovery time. Uh, you'll be out of it for a while. Oh, dear. And I just realized you'll... Well, I, if I know police procedure correctly, wouldn't you have radioed this in? Well, I, I can't have you recovering when they start searching out here. His eyes grew glassy and distant, and the mad scientist effect was complete. I thought of the search he mentioned, and how search and rescue dogs would be dispatched to find me. And for a second, I was afraid for Otto. Did Rupert the Hilljack just leave him in my patrol vehicle? Oh, I'm terribly sorry. I, I shouldn't have given you that premature hope. Um... He covered his face with shaking hands and sighed, and I knew my fate was sealed if I didn't do something now. He continued muttering, now about search dogs needing to get my scent off of his property, making me think again of poor Otto. Rupert seemed to be entranced by a flexing, gripping hand in the tank closest to him, and I went to it. Every muscle in my arms and torso strained as I pulled against the stretcher. The same muscles would be screaming in pain tomorrow, if there even was a tomorrow. And I was met with a slight groan, and I couldn't afford to worry if Rupert or the doctor heard me. Thankfully, the hum of machinery masked the noise. Come on, move. Rupert appeared to be doing sign language at another pair of eyes in one of the smaller vials. And the pair of hands he had been staring at signed back. The doctor was also watching, amused. Oh, she's grown quite accustomed to her situation, hasn't she, Rupert? Without the distractions of a complete body, she has so much time to ruminate. My right arm was free, and I felt hard metal as the leather straps slapped into my wrist. 
Both the doctor and Rupert snapped their heads at me, and Rupert charged, his brawny arms flying past mine as I reached out to meet him. Shovel-like hands closed on my throat as I found the bolt that had held me still affixed to the strap. Seeing my only chance, I reached out, grinding the bolt into Rupert's face, and a surprisingly soft voice screeched in pain. I pushed with the strength, and when I felt something give, I pulled down, soaking my hands in hot crimson. Rupert staggered back, his oven mid hands doing little to stop the torrent of blood coming from the gouge. Stop! Stop right there, or I'll shoot! I saw how the doctor's hands were shaking, and how he was holding my gun. After a moment's hesitation, I went back to unclasping my left hand, wincing at the shot, but feeling nothing. I couldn't say the same for the doctor, who screamed and dropped the gun, clutching his bleeding hand. Slide bite, the number one reason why you don't fire your first pistol without direct supervision. Even as he cursed in pain, he had a backup plan. Rupert screamed, an even higher, screechier sound than before. And to my horror, I saw he had fled only to retrieve an axe. I had time to free my left foot before forcing all my weight to that side, toppling over the gurney. I felt the axe whistle over where my head had been. My shoulder took the hard slam into the concrete, but mercifully, I cushioned my head with my hand. If I had been seeing stars, I wouldn't have had time to swing the gurney around with my right leg, slamming it into Rupert's shins as he came around. He toppled, and my fingers were digging into the last clasp as the axe stopped clattering onto the ground. He wasn't as slow as he looked, but he didn't seem to have perfect control of his hulking body. I got the axe and beat him handily to a standing position. He was left frozen, one knee on the floor. Don't kill me, mister. I was just playing. It was a child's voice. And it seemed like kismet that I noticed the faint scar running around the circumference of his visible forehead. Putting down a monster was the only way to restore some sanity to this insane situation. So I brought the axe down, burying it in his upper chest. The scream was also that of a child's, and my sanity started to rear up again, filling me with doubt. I yanked the axe out, leaving Rupert to slump to the floor when the doctor suddenly screamed in rage. He ran his hands through his filthy hair, smearing the blood from the wound. He had pituitary dwarfism. He only wanted to be big. That was my son! I charged him, knowing the pity I somehow still felt was going to get me killed. 
He immediately backed away from me, knocking over equipment between us as he did so. Wires were being pulled and sparks jumped, but I kept advancing. My community college dropout ass didn't know what any of this crap was. I should have known to be afraid. I hopped and stepped over everything, appreciating for the first time how big this lab was. It was easily twice as big as my tiny ranch house. And I saw the far wall for the first time. The doctor was desperately hammering at a keypad. And I positioned the axe to smash him in the temple with the butt of the handle when the floor opened up. A row of rusted metal enclosures, each the size of a porta john, rose from the floor, and half a dozen people were inside. Each was in a state equal to or worse than Jacob, and the hesitation that brought cost me. I swung the axe handle just as the gates start to rise, groaning with disuse. The stench hit me that moment as well. These captives weren't getting regular bathroom breaks. And the doctor had enough time to spray something at me from a hose connected to his belt. And the world disappeared in a blinding flash of searing, burning pain. The doctor seemed to back off, probably rightly guessing that I could break him in half, even blinded. There! There! Kill him! Kill him now! The smashing of glass and the whoosh of flame and heat came too late to stop that order. But from the sound of it, something had found its target as the doctor started screaming. I've seen hundreds of action and horror movies, but no actor had ever matched the scream of agony the doctor unleashed. If he survived, his vocal cords would be shredded. The moaning test subjects seemed to recoil in shock as I had. The heat was growing, no matter how much I backed away. And here I was, blind and helpless. The punctuation of that thought came when a hand gripped my wrist. I'll be your eyes, just follow me. My improvised Molotov cocktail saved you a moment ago. Give it any time and it'll take it back. Jacob? There's a maze of tunnels. If you want out, you need me. I nodded because the heat was only growing and I felt pain in my useless eyes. Without a second's hesitation. You were out of your mind before. I could barely talk to you. The transmitters have a quite limited range. I was unprepared for how impaired I would be due to the signal loss, but I am ready now. Grabbed the rest of me before we set out. What about the others? I winced as I hip-checked something metallic, but Jacob paid no mind. The moans and angry cries of the test subjects were spreading out now. To get around the fire and come after us, no doubt process didn't go so well for them. If you don't start transmitting the right way, you'll never fix it. They're zombies. The brain was the biggest test. Took a lot of tries to get right. The doctor thought it was important to keep them around for observation, but they have little else to offer. 
Won't the fire get their other parts? They shouldn't last too much longer, right? A jerk to my left, and I felt the plastic swinging doors brush against my sides. The grinding of dirt beneath my feet told me we were back in the tunnel I had woken up in. You did not see the tanks lower into the ground. It is part of the emergency fire system. It's all predicated on someone being alive to put the fire out themselves so as not to attract attention. They have time, but only so much. Another jerk to my left. I asked more basic questions that seem inane now in retrospect. I was trying to distract myself from the helplessness I felt and drown out the roars and cries of the test subjects that never seemed far away. Jacob murmured something while I was asking how far we were from where I had found it. What was that? It turned out he had said head down while I was still yammering on. As my forehead was met with a blow from a wall of earth and rock. The way grows ever narrower. I groaned in frustration, but the chatter of the test subjects increased in pitch. How much further? The acrid smell of smoke was starting to assault my throat. I had seen huge vents in the ceiling of the lab where I had been wheeled in. I guess they weren't up to the job of containing the inferno pursuing our pursuers. I got into a crawling position, and Jacob tapped my right hand with his right foot to give me something to follow. We went to crawling through an even narrower tunnel before he bothered to answer my question. Not much further. The tunnel leads to a basement of a house, and... He stopped speaking for a moment, but he never broke his stride. Or did that word actually apply to crawling? Whatever. He didn't slow down for a second. Already, the blackness was starting to fade into a miasma of colors. Nothing recognizable, but at least Jacob had been right about the blindness being temporary. I saw hellishly bright suns that were most likely the lights in that cramped tunnel. When there were no more, there was only a vague blur against black. But the creak of a well-oiled hatch told me we were at the end and Jacob dragged me out into more musty air. An air that smelled like the cellar in my childhood home. This same smell muffled that of the smoke when Jacob slammed the hatch behind us. Without my sight, no sound of a lock clicking into place had ever been so satisfying. I should have known we wouldn't get to relish our victory. Oh, no. What? What? But in the swirling ebony, even I could make out something wrong. A single red light that looked enormous, but was probably the size of a pencil eraser. My stomach dropped when Jacob explained. Batteries. Almost dead. The red light danced as Jacob started to move about in a panic. And then, it was gone. A second later, the sound of a body slumping to the floor 
told me I was on my own now. I felt like a right heel for mocking Jacob before I had even seen him. Caring too much sets you up for a lot of strain if you ended up in a situation that went sour. Then I remembered there were certain someones who were out to do some very literal tearing. Lest I think I was home free, the sounds of angry groans and hands slamming against the hatch rubbed a little more salt in the wound. Here I was, blind in a basement, with my only choice being to grab a wall and hopefully follow it to a way out. It was all I had, but judging from the rattling on the hinges, I would need more time. Without my sight, every new sound or smell just brought bad news. And touch wasn't helping me too much at the moment. But then, a beautiful sound cut through the night. It was further away, but catching up. I reached up, staying on the wall, forcing myself to ignore the first splintering of wood in the hatch. Keeping one hand high, I found a basement window. A barred basement window. But Merrill's voice was soon coming from just outside. Tim, are you okay? I found Otto down the road from your vehicle and followed him here. That's my good boy. I'm just blind, Merrill. Keep talking, I need to follow your voice. I need a way out, ASAP. I have a better idea. Stay where you are. Give me two seconds. As grateful as I was that she and Otto had found me, I didn't say out loud that she better really mean just two literal seconds. Three seconds later, a series of shots rang out, striking metal and rotted wood. I planted myself. And when I heard hard-soled shoes banging downstairs, I knew I was home free. Small hands wrapped around my huge forearm, and I felt as good as saved. Two more pairs of nailed feet padded down the stairs, and Otto announced his presence by barking excitedly. Officer Beckett, Officer Otto, let's get the fuck out of here right now! A loud bang emphasized my point as wood clattered across the floor. Merrill dragged me away, and somehow I forced myself to take the rickety stairs one at a time. The cool night air washing over my face was a false promise of salvation, but it was the last leg of my flight to freedom. We're going to your vehicle and waiting for backup. There's at least half a dozen of them. It's close by. Come on. And the last crash sounded from behind us. And I trusted Merrill to steer me away from any obstacle, and both her and Otto to have my back. The moans started to pour out, along with the pitiful beings making them. A scream, a childish scream, rose from behind us followed by thudding footsteps. I should have known Rupert had been emptied out and an axe wasn't going to do the trick. But now, I was afraid for Merrill and Otto. The test subjects were perfect shambling minions for a doctor who was dangerous in his haplessness. 
Rupert would be a problem to someone defending a helpless blind man. Run! I'm just slowing you down. But she just ordered me to get down. Merrill didn't understand the situation well enough to know why fighting a test subject whose vital organs were a mile away was a moot point. And I didn't have time to explain as I heard her load another magazine and unload it just as quickly, to no effect. As a familiar fist hit me in the stomach like a meteor, I felt like I would never breathe again. A similar grunt sounded off nearby, and my rage started to boil over when a pained yelp sounded off. Him alone. I want him. That child's voice. An immense form loomed over me, and the moans retreated slightly. I was so scared. I fainted when you hit me with that axe. I didn't believe my daddy when he told me all that surgery would protect me, and now he's dead because I didn't believe. I hate you! It was the tantrum of a hysterical child. An enormously dangerous monster of a child pushed beyond sanity, but still recognizable as a child nonetheless. I wondered crazily how he made so much noise when so much of what was supposed to be inside was elsewhere. I saw a black shape slam into Rupert's lighter, huger form. He may have been a beast, but there was no way he knew how to keep a proper stance to keep on his feet and absorb the impact. Otto had gotten on my roof one morning and fallen off when I was just about to reach him. I felt like I had watched my own child tumble out of view. And to my relief, he was back on his feet and shrugged it off. Thank God, duchies were so tough. Something that sounded like layers of burlap and leather rending sounded off in the night. Rupert screamed, and he screamed. It was a scream of unmitigated horror, and a thought occurred to me that was so horrific it could only be correct. Otto had found a scar and ripped him open. Even with his vital organs elsewhere, a child's mind couldn't handle the ghastly sight of their open chest cavity. Help! Help me! Please! And his sobs rose into hysterics. My heart ached for the child he once was. But he wasn't that child now. I staggered to my feet. I realized I could see Meryl as a bloated, writhing blob now, and I helped her to her feet. I called Otto, knowing the test subjects weren't all going to tend to their de facto boss. Meryl took the reins again, and the moans started up again behind us. But the blows had taken a lot out of us, and the horde was nipping at our heels when I felt steel in my hands. Merrill loaded me into the passenger's seat, letting Otto hop in my lap before slamming the door. They were on us the second she closed the door behind us. They banged on the windows, and the sounds they made showed they were using some kind of makeshift weapons. Merrill turned the keys, the engine turned, 
and the tires exploded. I held Merrill and Otto tight. The dog seemed to understand. There was no fighting now, and he wanted to be with his master until the end. The windows started to crack under a cacophony of bangs, and we knew this was it. And there was silence. I dared to guess what had happened and was proven right when I heard the bodies slumping into the pavement and grass. It was a long moment before we ended our embrace and separated. I asked the obvious. Do you see a fire? What? From the way we came. Yeah, next field over. Some old barn is going up. In the house whose basement you were in is starting to smolder too. Why? What happened? You can read my report later. I could see shimmering gold coalescing into something recognizable. I couldn't wait to see Merrill's angelic face again. She got on the radio called in for backup without a tremor in her voice and cemented my decision to ask her out later. But right now, the most important thing. Okay, Otto, okay. You earned yourself a puppuccino. In our final tale, we join a family being forced to make the heartbreaking decision to leave their home. It's a tough call at the best of times, but they don't even know why everything's gone to the dogs. If it weren't for sporadic radio broadcasts, they'd have no answers. But in this tale, shared with us by author Colin B. Randall, we discover that sometimes deeper mysteries can grow from the truth. Performing this tale are Sarah Thomas, Jesse Cornett, Jessica McAvoy, Jeff Clement, and Nicole Goodnight. So pack up your belongings. It's time to go on a road trip. But don't stop for supplies. Don't stop for the bathroom. Don't stop for anything. You're nearly there. It's only 30 miles to Paris. My family was about to stop in Wolf City to quickly and quietly stretch our legs and collect ourselves. We lived just outside of Dallas, and when I woke up this morning, we all packed a few basics and survival gear up, then left town. Honey, keep going a little bit. There's another one further down a little more out of the way. That'd probably be better. Dad was looking for the safest place. Lucky for us, 
My mom and dad spent a lot of time going out to various parts of East Texas growing up, and they both knew a lot of back roads to get away from the bigger cities. We stopped at a gas station. It was closed. Dad picked up a rock and broke the glass door. It was funny. He had always been such a stickler for the rules and the law before this. In some ways, he was more lenient than Mom. But like he always said, rules are rules for reasons, so it's best to just believe them. He meant that there's always a reason for a rule, even if you don't understand. He didn't even go over the speed limit. Ever. He unlocked the door and walked inside while we followed behind. Mom took Julie, my little sister, to the restroom. Dad threw some water bottles to me while he and Travis, my older brother, looked for medicine and a couple other things. Dad grabbed some juice for Julie before we all got back in our SUV and got back on the road. I'm thirsty, Daddy. Dad handed Julie a little bottle with a robot head on it. Here, sweetie. Don't drink too much. We can't stop again. Give it to Elena when you're done. Julie traced around the robot's face with her finger. Thank you, Daddy. It had been around two weeks since it all started, but it was hard to tell. No one really knew what was happening at first. No one thought anything weird was happening. The reports varied wildly, and no one could connect the dots. Then... It was too late. We were asleep when evacuation started and what little accurate information was made available. Most of our neighbors, we assume, left overnight after somehow hearing the news. Or they were dead. We didn't see hardly anyone at all on the roads that morning, not even the few times we got on the highways. It looked like a war-torn country or a zombie movie, some other made-up place. Random buildings on fire and explosions. What might as well have been endless plumes of smoke billowing up in all directions. The whole time we were driving, I kept thinking I would wake up and it would be a normal day. I couldn't believe all this had happened in one night. Mom was trying to distract Julie. Jules, do you see all the wildflowers? Look how pretty they are. How many colors do you see? Red, pink, yellow, more pink. Julie kept on going. She'd be in her own world for a moment. Mom knew Julie was too young to notice all the livestock was gone. Travis and I had been out this way enough to know there should have been some cows, horses, goats, sheep, even an emu farm. We didn't see anything. Travis got out of his seat and leaned in close to Dad. Travis, get back in your seat. You need a seatbelt. Julie tried to boss everyone around. It's okay, Jules. I just have to ask Dad a question and then I'll sit down, okay? Okay. Wow, a blue one. Another yellow? Red? Some white ones? Travis put his hand on Dad's headrest. and stuff. I don't know, son. I haven't even seen many birds flying either. Or dogs. It won't be too much longer until we get there. Then we should have some answers. Or at least we'll be safe. 
Best to go sit back down and buckle up like Julie said. We don't know what there is on the roads ahead. Dad was trying to keep it together. He was trying to keep us all out of harm's way, whatever that may be. Our vehicle broke down just before some town called Honey Grove, outside a barbecue restaurant. It puttered and sputtered, then shook like a wet dog before we coasted to a stop. Travis got out and helped Dad push our SUV into the parking lot. Dad popped the hood to look at the engine, but knew it would most likely prove pointless. He was knowledgeable about many things, but he was no mechanic. We were about 30 miles away from our destination. The radio stations, that still worked anyway, had said there was a military base in Paris, Texas, that could take in civilians. We all knew continuing on foot would be much riskier, so Dad and I went to search the area for another vehicle, while Travis stayed with Mom and Julie. It looked like no one was around. It was quiet. A couple buildings were burning near us, and the smoke provided a bit of cover from whatever was going on. We moved around the corner, stopping behind every other obstacle and double-checking to make sure the coast was still clear. Across the street, in between a tire shop and a feed store, was a big white truck with the door open. My father motioned for me to stay put. I crouched behind a dumpster as he ran across the street. He leaned into the truck for a few seconds and then back out. Dad gave me a thumbs up, then twisted his fist in the air a few times. A lucky break. He found the keys. The engine cranked right up. Dad got in the driver's seat and backed across the street for me to get in. Julie's going to like this. It's so big. She'll think it's a monster truck. I jumped into the tall cab, and we moseyed around the debris in the road. We had all been trying to keep her distracted, clueless as to what was going on. Dad honked as we drove around the corner where Mom, Travis, and Julie were waiting for us. Probably not the smartest idea to make extra noise, but we would be back on the road in under a minute after we got the bags from the SUV and everyone loaded up in the truck. At least we should have been. When we pulled up next to our SUV, they were all gone. Mom? Travis? Jules? No answer. Shh. We need to stay quiet, Elena. Go check the car for any signs of them, and I'll go look outside. Dad looked around the barbecue place to see if any doors or windows were open. I checked the SUV. All the bags and gear were missing. I didn't hear my father outside. He must have found a way in. Dad? Dad! I slowly started walking towards the front door to look inside. There was no telling what had happened. As soon as I was about two steps from the door, it burst open. Dad looked a little disheveled. There's nothing inside. Let's go back down this street. There was a little grocery store a block or so. Maybe they went to look for some more food. My father and I used to go on walks together all the time when I was younger. He'd point out all sorts of bugs and birds as we walked around our neighborhood. I missed those walks. But I got so busy as I got older and had so many things going on, we just kind of stopped. I grabbed his hand and held it like I did when I was little as we approached the grocery store. 
the doors were wide open, and the glass shattered out. No signs of anyone inside. Elena, stay here. Dad took a few steps inside. He walked into the first aisle and looked right. He slowly scanned behind him as he turned to the right. The coast seemed clear. He paused for another moment, then waved me in behind him. Someone had been here. Probably locals looting the place overnight when the news first hit. Things were thrown everywhere. It looked half-stocked at best. Some large aisle shelving had been knocked over, and some boxes and ripped bags were all over the floor. There was even a big pile of moldy dirt or something streaked on the linoleum. It smelled awful, like once when Travis forgot to set the trash out before we left for vacation. It had some old meat that Mom had thrown away and sat outside, rotting for almost a week. Home Sweet Home had lost a little bit of its meaning when we returned from that vacation. Dad walked back to the front after checking the building, as I got some food while we were there. I grabbed Mom's favorite chocolate, and cheese puffs for Julie, and beef jerky for Travis for when we found them. My nerves were boiling, but I tried to keep it together for my dad. I knew he was doing the same for me. Dad, what do we do now? Anything back there? Nothing. We just keep looking until we find them. Dad was more scared than he was letting on. There was a clatter from somewhere in the back. He leaned to my ear. I think it's time we leave. Let's get back to the truck for now. It's safer, and we can cover more ground that way. We slowly stepped through the glass shards as they cracked and popped. Metal clings continued as we exited the building and walked back to the truck. Dad hesitated and looked back at the store. He turned quickly and looked in the back of the truck to see what was there. He grabbed a metal pipe and put it in the cab with us. We drove around the same area a few times, but it was a ghost town. We took a turn and started checking out the next few blocks. It all looked the same, like all the people had just vanished. We got to the town square and walked on foot for a few minutes. There weren't as many fires or smoke plumes this far from the bigger towns. A church in the main square was completely covered in dense vines and overgrown exotic foliage. I walked around the side to the entrance. It looked like an old jungle mission that was abandoned centuries ago. The church sign read, Shepherd's Calvary Church. Shelter, water, food, faith. Another weird, moldy clump lay out on the lawn in front of a broken window. Broken from the inside, stained glass was spread about the grass and mixed with the earthy clump. Some of the vines looked like they were growing from it. I kept walking past. The front door was ajar. It looked like the preacher's lifeless body on the ground in the doorway, holding it open. His hand had melted onto the bricks beneath him. Dad turned me away. We need to get back to the car. We'll be okay. Everything will be okay. It had been a couple hours, and it was getting too late to finish the trip to Paris before sundown. We went back to the barbecue in case Mom went back to our car.
I helped Dad move it around behind some trees and then moved the truck where it was somewhat hidden from view. We kind of barricaded around the sides of the vehicles and the back of the restaurant. Dad put the seats down in the SUV and made a pallet for me. I laid down, but couldn't rest. Dad was sitting on the back edge, listening, watching, waiting for Mom and his son and daughter. I got up and sat beside him. Dad? What is it, Elena? Do you think we'll ever see them again? Just as I finished speaking, a couple explosions rang in the distance. A faint orange glow cast over the tree line. That's miles away. We're safe. We'll find them tomorrow, sweetie. For now, I think we need to lock up the car and try to get some rest. Your mother and brother know what to do. Wherever they are, they're okay. And they'll take care of Jules. I love you, Elena. He kissed me on the forehead. I leaned against his shoulder. I love you too, Dad. Another fireball shot up towards the sky, this time a little bit closer. It shook the buildings and made the grass rustle. I held him tight while the flames flickered against the deserted buildings. Between that and the wind, it looked like the shadows were moving. Like they were intelligent, hunting, searching for something. I'm thirsty, Dad. I meant to grab my water bottle earlier, but left it in the white truck when we were moving vehicles around. He scooted over to the back door. I'll get it. Be right back. He smiled as he opened the door and got out. He was always so good not to show fear. Dad took a few steps toward the truck when something shot past the SUV in the grass. I couldn't see what it was. It could have been a roll of wind blowing past in waves, but the night air was calm, dead. A sweet, rotten jasmine scent took over my senses. More sounds behind me. I turned and didn't see anything. I rolled down the window a couple inches. Dad! Dad! I looked out the other side, but I couldn't see him. He must have already been at the truck. Right here, Elena. What's wrong? He didn't sound too far away. I heard him, but still couldn't see him. I started to panic. I think something's out there. Hurry, Dad! He walked around the corner. Elena, stay calm. There's nothing here. What did you see? I don't know. Nothing, but... But there was something. I heard it. Dad! Something shot up the tree behind him and lurched forward. He yelled as whatever it was hit the barricade we had made, then dropped out of sight. I opened the back door so he could get in as quick as possible. Run, Dad! Here! Helena! He threw a bag with some food and water into the SUV. He put one hand on top of the window as he bounced to step up into the back. He shifted his weight forward to jump in when a couple of vines snapped around his face from the ground behind him. The leaves all bent in and contracted against his skin, inflating and deflating, like they were breathing. I was holding onto his hand, and the other was still holding onto the top of the car. He started twitching, and his muscles kept contracting. 
Daddy! He let go of my hand and started flailing both his arms, seizing and grasping at the air. The vines were suspending him. He just had one foot on the ground, trying to push his way past them. I reached for his hand again. Daddy! No! I think he was trying to scream, but all that was coming out were clicks and rasps. The vines yanked him to the ground and swarmed him. His fingers slipped through mine. With his last reserves of energy, he sprang back up and slammed the back door closed. The vines were twisted all the way around his head. The leaves looked like they were pulsing or beating. Dad couldn't breathe. He couldn't see. I think his face and throat were melting. The vines were pulling him down. His face was slowly starting to peel away as he fought to stay on his knees. I was sobbing, my face soaked in tears. No! Daddy! He made a heart with his hands at his chest, as his shoulders and abdomen were still twitching. He pointed towards me in the SUV, then held his hand back over his heart before his body was thrown back to the ground. And he stopped moving. I don't know how long it was, but sometime after the vines released him, I heard something moving around the base of the vehicle. It circled me a few times, then stopped. I softly wept for hours, clutching my legs in the corner. I lost my whole family. I tried to get some rest, but none came. Odd sounds howled during the night. Inside the vehicle, silence. At daybreak, I opened the door and waited. Quiet and still. I grabbed my bag and went around the front of the SUV. Dad's feet were sticking out past the side and the back. I kept myself from looking any further and got in the truck. I turned the keys and started driving, past the streets where we were looking for Mom, Travis, and Julie, past the feed store where we found the truck, past the town square, past the church. It was burning, and the preacher's body wasn't by the door anymore. I didn't have time, nor did I care to find out what happened. There were no more working radio stations for any updates, so I just kept on towards Paris. If Mom, Travis, and Julie were out there, at least they had each other. The fuel gauge was starting to creep closer to E as I zigged and zagged around all the stalled and abandoned cars on the highway. I didn't know any back roads to make it easier for me. There were so many cars, some with doors open, a few flipped on their side, or burning, or both. Some loose articles blowing in the wind like tumbleweeds. Clothes strewn about. Some papers. A teddy bear. More moldy clumps. It took me a few hours just to get about 20 miles up the road. Then the truck overheated. I was so close. I pared down to just a few things in my bag. Some water and a couple granola bars. A knife and a blanket. Only ten more miles. I could walk and maybe make it before sundown. I stood on top of one of the cars and surveyed the road ahead, then turned to look behind me. It seemed to go on forever. It was so 
quiet. I could do this. I had to keep going. For Mom, Travis, and Julie. For Dad. I had to keep going. I walked for a couple hours, but I had to stop and rest. The sun was beating down. No clouds. It wasn't too much further. I needed a boost of energy to get me to Paris. Just a couple more miles. I chugged most of the water that was left and ate a few pieces of the beef jerky I had gotten for Travis. Such flavor and texture. Never had anything actually felt so nourishing. I dropped to my knees and started to cry. The tears mixed with the sweat and the taste of salt hit my lips. My legs hurt from so much walking. Dad was gone. I wiped my face. I had to get up for Jules, for Mom and Travis. I had to keep going. I pulled myself up and started walking. The wind picked up from in front of me. It felt good. The trees stirred in the breeze, and the wildflowers started dancing. I started jogging, picking up speed and running into the wind. I could keep up this pace. I'd be there in less than half an hour. I'd be safe. Everything would be okay. The grass looked like the ocean blowing in the wind. The skies darkened. Something dropped and hit a car windshield in front of me with a small, distinct thud. Then another. Rain. I almost smiled. I ran even harder and even more determined. I stopped as the rain picked up like applause. Another blast of air. This time much colder. It smelled like rotten meat and perfume. joining us on our journey down the lost highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. 
No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.